Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Float Your Boat. Here we are again. It's Brett Pattinson and George Sabados. Hello, listeners. Yes, yeah, so uh, so we have one of your uh, connections on today, uh, a Correct. man by the name of... Pete Wilson. Now, what's he famous for? Pete Wilson's... Well, he's not... F- he's not famous, he, but he's uh, got know, a story. He, he's got a great story and, you know, Float Your Boat's all about real people and real stories and That's struggle. Right. And, and what are we doing here? Yeah, we're unreal, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, Pete, Pete has a good story. He was um, a young lad growing up in Sydney and yep. found himself uh, drinking too much and, you know, we'll, we'll let him tell the story, but he's ended up being, being a, an avid record collector and he trades records, sells them, collects them. And it's quite fascinating. What oh, I just wonder how his wife copes with all that because I'm sure he takes up a lot of space with his stuff. I bet he does and I know that my wife would not allow me to have millions of records. Mine, mine neither. Uh, but anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's how what floats his boat, so let's get him in here. Let's get him in. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Are we not doing the preamble? No, this isn't. This is not a preamble, George. This is the interview. We're here. Pete's here. No, well, I've be, only been talking to him for the last half hour. Exactly. Half the interview is done. Listeners not even recorded. <laughs> it's going to be a very short interview. As George, as you know, listeners, George doesn't really like to chat very much, and so half the no. interview is already gone. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're in the studio, and we've got Pete Wilson in the studio today, George, brother of Brian, brother of um, Wilson Pickett. G'day, boys. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> so what's, you, uh, what's, what's, uh, what, what's your claim to fame, Pete? In what area, George? No, oh, that's, yeah, right. Well, I know Brett did tell me that you, um, you have, you know, you've gone through the diversification, uh, uh, you know, routine in life. So you've diversified into many different fields. Actually, what we should do is we should start with your background, Pete. Where did you grow up? Okay, my background, I'm a Dulichell boy. Right. uh, Which is near Marrickville, in case anyone doesn't know. Unusual, you're white. Yes. (laughs) Actually, actually you're you're right, Pete, because we've got listeners in the UK, the US and Japan. So so Dulwich Hill is near Sydney, Australia. Near Sydney, it's in Sydney. Well, it's in Sydney, yes. Near the inner city. Inner west. Inner west. Inner west. And it's, uh, what, eight kilometres from the city, but it used to be, uh, I mean, I'm assuming you're my age, roughly about 53. Yeah, you don't look a day over 100. Yeah, well, I'm sucking my gut in at the moment. So am I. Well, are we looking good? (laughs) (laughs) You're looking good. (laughs) I'll breathe out soon. So you you grew up in Dulwich Hill, uh, brothers and sisters? Uh, I'm the youngest of six, three brothers, two sisters. In a Uh, two-bedroom house, I presume? Uh, yes, exactly. Mm. Uh, though with a post-war add-on at the back. Right. 
so technically three, two yeah. and a half, really. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, we but like anyone else of that era, you know, we made do with what we had and uh, we had fairly happy childhood. You had good memories? Very busy. Of, yeah. Very good memories. I mean, uh, there was never a dull moment being one of six. Um, you know, Catholic upbringing, there was all mm. that too, rules and regulations from mm. on high there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, there was also uh, school, Catholic schools as well. It's, it's funny how um, you live in a working class area, uh, you're in a family with a lot of kids and the father, who's the breadwinner, listens to the advice of the priest and sends their kids to Catholic schools and pay for it, pay for the privilege. They could, we could have had a free education. Yeah. But, you know, it was their beliefs and that they wanted us to grow up like that. So I grew up in the 70s prepared for the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> but did your, did your dad uh, behave like a lot of Catholic dads? I grew up in Surrey Hills and I've noticed within the Italian community, they'd send their kids diligently off to church every Sunday, but they wouldn't go themselves. Dad they'd went. go to the TAB or pub and have a drink and just take it, take time off. Bottle of DA, yeah? Yeah, DA oh, or Reshes. Yeah. yeah. Did you know Reshes is one of the most expensive beers in, in bottle shops these days? Wow. I went in the other day. Not that I drink <laughs> that much. <laughs> Are they still silver bullets? Yeah. The cans? Well, they don't do cans, but they do, so a long neck's $8. I mean... Gee whiz, that's a nice segue. It's expensive. Sorry, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. I just, yeah. you know, when, when beer comes up, I mean... So you know. Irish, Irish Catholic heritage, right? Actually, uh, Dad's mother was born in Cumberslang in Scotland. Right. Dad's father went off to fight in the war with his best uh, friend who was a Scottish immigrant. Yep. Uh, met, met his best friend's sister over there. Um, his, his Scottish friend got killed. He went back to the family to give his condolences, ended up falling in love and brought the sister back to Australia. And they were Catholic. That's strange, isn't yeah. it? Well, I mean, the Scots, oh, I the Scots were always Catholic. Oh, that's right. They, yes, of yes. course. Church of England um, changed and the Scots resisted. Yes, that's mm. right. A lot mm. of Presbyterians as well. Yes. That's right, yes. And known for being tight. Canny. Excuse me. Is the word. Canny. Uh, canny. Yeah. Canny is the word. You can yes, do it. That, yeah, that yeah. Runs cannot, in my blood. Cannot. I cannot do it. I cannot give you some money. <laughs> I'm giving her all she's got, Captain. If I push it any harder, the whole thing will blow. I can't help you, Captain. She's about to blow. <laughs> so, so, Pete, so growing up in Dulwich Hill yeah. in a Catholic school, mm-hmm. In a good family? Yeah, Boy Scout, uh, Cub Scout, <coughs> Boy Scout. Um, yeah, good family of good values. So yes. let, let's fast forward <coughs> slightly, excuse me, f- just slightly. So you finish school and what, what happens? Finish school and start an apprenticeship. In? Um, in sheet metal. Um, back then uh, at school we had a thing called vocational guidance tests. Yes. And... They were companies that would come to your school and through a series of questionnaires they would tell you, advise you that uh, you either follow this field or that field. Uh, I was told that I'd make a good policeman or tradesperson. So I thought uh, I didn't want to go on to fifth and sixth form or year 11 and 12 as it's known today. 
So I opted for the apprenticeship and my father was pleased as punch. Right. He was going to have... Uh, well, well, there was already a... Um, my eldest brother went on and became a public servant. Uh, my sisters went to business college, as was expected of them. One became a nurse, one became a flight attendant. Um, and my other two brothers became tradesmen. Uh, one became a fitter and turner, the other became a butcher. And I thought I'll... I went for a lot of job interviews in Year 10 and picked the one that was closest to home. I could walk down to Marrickville for my first job. Yeah. And so I became an apprentice sheet metal worker. You must have been surrounded by Greeks all your life. I was. Actually, was a, the, the company I started my apprenticeship at was called Olympia Refrigeration. <laughs> oh, that's still there. It's not still there. The, the building's still there. It's in Fitzroy Street, yeah? It's in, um, no, it's Meeks Road. Meeks Road, that's right. That's right. That's right. And it's a yoghurt company now, the building, but uh, it was a refrigeration company for many years. And um, they used to take on 12 apprentices a year and only keep three at the end of the year. And I was one of the ones that was sort of let go. Right. Um, but that was okay. I went and got a job somewhere else and finished my apprenticeship. And um, I finished my apprenticeship in Camperdown. And uh, you'd know this place, Brett. It was in between the White Horse Hotel <laughs> and the Student Prince. Yeah, so I, I remember the all-nighters yeah. playing the White Horse Hotel yeah, a few yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back I in the day when that. I was an apprentice. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, do, I have fond me- well, I I have fond memories. I don't remember them, but I have. I know I have them. It was during the Scar Trek of nineteen eighty four. It was a Scar Trek eighty three or eighty four. Because uh, everyone else has the memories of Brett. They just, Everybody tells they, me they fill yes. in the gaps for you. It's funny. They yeah. t- they say, "Do you remember when this happened?" And I I do. I instantly I go, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Mm. But I don't remember. Like if you said to me, "What happened?" You know, I yeah for me, but that, and no timeline either. Right, but. Okay, so at some point you you met this fellow over here, but but you, I mean, back then in Australia there was still a lot of trades available, and you felt like this was going to go on forever. This was going to be my life, yeah. Yes. And what happened? What happened? Um, I tell you what. Where I finished my apprenticeship, there was a, a firm called Catering Aids, uh, and they used to fit out restaurants with their stainless steel, custom-made stainless they steel. They were on Parramatta Road. They were on Parramatta Road, which became... I remember became them. My old man used to go there and buy equipment from them. There you go. Um, but a, a family connection there, that building, which later became an antique place, which mm. has just gone out of business, the place is empty now, it used to be the headquarters for Sing, Singer Sewing Machines in Sydney. Oh, is that what that building was? Back in the day. And really? my uncle actually worked there. My father's brother-in-law who, um, Jack Winchester, who played for Balmain in the 40s. Go the Tigers. And was a good salesman for um, the Singer Sewing Machine Company. So uh, another another relative ended up working in the very same building. Jack Winchester, good name, by the way. That is a good yeah. name. Uh, actually, his son played for um, Canterbury in the early 70s. Right. He appeared on the 1972 Scanlon's uh Bubblegum card, card. Yeah, gee, I used to collect them too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bringing back memories. Yeah, you are. Mm. You are. So, so you finished your apprenticeship and then what happened? Finished my apprenticeship. But during that apprenticeship there was this old bloke, uh, Tom. He was in his early 60s and especially on cold winter's mornings you'd, you'd, you'd see him. He was old and creaking joints and you could tell he didn't want to be around cold metal. Mm. And that was when the seed was planted for me to just in the back of my mind not to be doing this 
before I'm well before I'm that age. Because I'm mm. assuming he, he'd been doing it all his life, and he'd been doing it all his life. And I thought, well, if I can help myself, um, that won't be me. So, so what happened next? Let's let's keep on. What happened next? On. I finished my apprenticeship. Thought I knew everything, like every young person who finishes their oh, trade. Oh, you were young, dumb, and <laughs> went of, out to conquer the world and 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 earn my rightful place in the in in the trade. And uh, I went from job to job, and um, I, I did have a bit of a handicap at the time. I, I, I drank too much, I think, like any young tradesperson, and um, I. Uh, made a few bad decisions and not only that but at the same time too I, I was I, I really wanted I, I sort of felt this urge to be heard somehow and I um, and I was very nervous though I was a very shy and nervous person so at the same time I, I took on acting lessons I went to this I went to this uh, school of drama in in Surrey Hills I'm in Stanley Street in Surrey Hills in this old church right. And um, opposite the elephant's foot, mm. is that where it was? Uh, it was it was up near Skeggs there on the corner of Stanley and um, the street where No Names was. Um, oh, okay, further down, yeah, right. Yeah, um, and that was really good for me. It was something totally different because um, I suppose I used alcohol to, um, to 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 make myself less shy. Um, mm. But, um, you know, in between drinks, I, you know, I wasn't so um, bubbly or uh, full of personality. So I thought acting lessons would, would sort of get me out of my shell. Mm. So I did that and um, it, it did help, you know. It, it, it introduced me to a different set of people, you know, because you'd be at work and they'd oh, what do you want to do acting lessons for? Bloody poof, mm. you know. Um, a lot of poofters there, aren't they? Yeah. I said, yes, but there's a lot of girls there too. <laughs> <laughs> and that was quite handy, actually. So, um, so that, got me, that got me into, you know, and having been a, grown up a Catholic and being segregated from girls, because mm. um, they segregate you uh, in year five from the girls in the playground. Yep. Um, so I had a bit of catching up to do and I caught up on, on that sort of scene. And um, it just got me out of my shell and it got me out and about. And um, then eventually in the, in the late 80s, uh, something had to give and, um, so, and it was the drink. I found the drink was my problem. <coughs> so I gave that away and I, I moved away from my old area. And what, what for? To break? Just to get away, just to break a pattern. So you were drinking a lot by then. I was. Did it just, did it, did it just sort of snowball? Or? It snowballed. Right. It snowballed. It and what, yeah. what was the what was the aha moment for you? Like to make you do something about it, though. Well, it was um, it was something my mother told me. Really? That, yeah. It was that got under your skin. It that got under my skin, and God bless her. She's a country girl. She was born in Yass. And her father was from uh, Durham in England. Right. And he came out as a young bloke here before the Second World War and he joined the army when, in the Second World War and was in Borneo. But when he came home, he um, helped build Burrunjuk Dam. Right. He was an excavator operator. And then the whole family moved up to um, Warragamba and he got work on Warragamba Dam. So he went where the work was. Hmm. And he actually, he was one of the people that got killed making Warragamba Dam. Wow. And his name's on the memorial there, Jack Grant. Um, 
though Australia was his adopted country, he, he, when we went to a memorial service um, some decades ago, they had the English flag over his name. So I suppose that was for his country of birth. But, um, I mean, you know, his family became as Aussie as, as anyone. Um, so uh, that's how Mum ended up in, in Sydney. And, and she uh, ended she was 19 when that happened, but she was one of the eldest kids and there were eight kids in that family. So she was living in Clavelli at the time. And at that time, um, you uh, rented a room off, off a, a, a nice couple. Uh, you know, and other girls would live there. So it was all proper, mm. you know, back in those days in the 50s. So she lived in Clavelli uh, and she worked at the WD and H.O. Wills cigarette factory at, Moore, at Park. Moore Park. And that's where my father worked and that's where they met. So if it wasn't for smoking, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> and, in, and in thanks to that, I smoked a pack a day for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad so, I gave that caper away too. So you gave that up as well. But, oh, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Mom, what did your mum say to you to give up? The drink and give up oh, the smokes. Oh, the drink. She said, and it's this stuck in my mind. Uh, she said, Peter, you come into this world with your good name and only you can take that away from you. Right. So that had a profound effect that on you, That had a profound effect on me because... Because um, you were trying out. I was blaming everyone else. I was blaming the drink. I was blaming everyone else, blaming <laughs> circumstances. Yeah, right. And then I, I realised one day that, that it's me that's causing all this havoc to myself. What do I need to do? Um, so you so gave it up? Yeah, gave it up, moved, to, moved here to Bondi, just a couple of hundred metres down the road in Ramsgate Avenue. Right. Right next door to the North Bondi RSL. Yeah. Right. So. And the beach was my front backyard and life was great. I used to run along the beach, became healthy and kept working as a sheet metal worker. But that urge to uh, have a voice returned. And um, through connections uh, of that acting school, they'd formed a, a group in Waverley called the Shoestring Drama Club. So we used to put on uh, amateur productions there and that was a good outlet for me um, and a confidence booster again. And it was at that same time um, that a friend of mine, he's actually the ex-production manager of Festival Records, a guy I grew up with and I've known since kindergarten, Mark Sequera. Mm. Um, he uh, dared me. Uh, it was in the On The Street magazine. There was an ad for... Um, it was the late 80s. There was an ad for a, uh, a Chaz Smash for the local uh, Madness cover band. A character that I admired because I was a big fan of Madness. Hmm. He said, oh, this is up your alley. Why don't you go for this? And I thought, wow, um, I knew how to play a brass instrument because I'd been in the brass band at school and I was also involved with Bankstown City Brass Band for 10 years after that. And um, I thought, yeah, I can dance like him, I can sing like him and I can play a bit of trumpet like him. You certainly don't look like him. Oh, I, I did look like him when I put the suit on and, and oh, really? with, the, with the haircut. Pete, yeah. Yeah. He didn't used to have the, um, the ZZ top beard <laughs> back those days. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you saw a photo. Yeah, well, he, threw, that, he rode in yeah, on can his... Can you hear it at Pete, the moment, he wrote, he, wrote, he wrote in on his uh, Malvern Star chopper. <laughs> Pete, Pete's got a great great head for uh, radio. He does. George, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, chewed minty. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so you so you turned up for the you went for the audition. I went for the audition, and um, little to my knowledge was that um, they'd had advertised for a long time and were sick of people uh, turning up and claiming to be able to do the job. So, um, so what made you different? The manager of the band had a screening process by this time. Oh yeah, and I spoke to the manager, and he said, uh, he said to me, uh, look. Here's a video of of, the, of all their hits. He said, "Go study this, and come back to me in in a few weeks. You know when you've learnt it." I thought, "Wow, this must be a real pro outfit." Um, <laughs> the, re- the real reason was uh, Simon Smith, the, the the lead singer in the um, in the uh, Madness cover band, was, was sick of uh, the the uh, manager sending him all these um, no hopers uh, and wasting their time in the in the rehearsal studio. So um, anyway, I, I, what I had to do then, I went and learnt it. I went and bought a suit from the op shops, um, three-button suit. Uh, I already knew how to um, do the moves. I'd been dancing to the all-nighters and other bands for years. And uh, I had to go to this guy's apartment in Epping and he put the video in the TV and he sat there in his lounge room while I danced and sang in front of him. <coughs> this was the manager, now, was it? This was the manager. Who was the manager? Peter Brooks. <laughs> Were you closed or unclosed? I was fully clothed. <laughs> I, I was dressed the part. Right. And he... And <laughs> he was... Now, uh, when, 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 when you've got a band around you and you're doing all this sort of stuff yeah. and the music's happening, this is, you know, it, it, it happens naturally. Mm. But can you imagine you know, the sort of dancing you did in front of the mirror as a teenager? A bit weird. Doing that in front of someone in their lounge room. A bit weird. While they sit and watch you. Mm. Did he have a smirk on his face? Uh, well, I don't know. I was, I was too uh, worried and, and nervous. But, I, you know, as, as any ham would say, on with the show. Yeah. And I even split my pants as I did a deft move and, and, <laughs> and lowered to the ground. And oh, the yeah? show went on, you know, and he <clears> was to impressed go with that. Has to go on, Pete. Oh, definitely. So I got the gig after that. Well, after that I had to go through the rehearsal process with the boys and um, I was in after that. When did you discover the love of black vinyl? Because oh. really, because really that's, oh, yeah. that, that's what brought, you know, my, well, not my attention because I already knew you, but it was because of, of that friend of mine that said, I met this guy at Roselle Markets and yes. he sells vinyl. Yes. And I said to George, you know, I'm always fascinated by people's obsession for yes. collecting. Yes. And so I thought, you know, so the band, you did the band and you did all yep. that stuff. Yep. Had you always been in love with 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 music and vinyl? Or? Always. Um, my earliest recollections are of music. Um, I can I remember vaguely remember being about four years old in 1969, and there was a, a BG special on TV. BGs were the big band at the time, and there was a BG special on TV, and this kid who lived a block away, who I was friendly with wanted me to come and watch it at his house and I wasn't allowed to cross the road on my own. And I dared my mother's wrath uh, and crossed the road and went to his place around the corner and watched that, that show. And that's my earliest recollection of anything is, is, is that music. 
growing up with music, the radiogram at home, three elder brothers, two elder sisters, all buying records. Uh, Mum was a Tom Jones fan, Dad was a Peggy Lee fan and Shirley Bassey fan. So that music was always around me. Uh, my sisters influenced me with Elton John and all that sort of 70s glam. Uh, my next eldest brothers up from me influenced me with Alice Cooper, with David Bowie, um, Joe Cocker, all that 70s stuff, The Sweet. Uh, and my eldest brother influenced me with prog music. He was listening to Pink Floyd. He was listening to the Winter Brothers. He was listening to uh, Grand Funk Railroad, uh, Led Zeppelin, all that stuff. The Beatles, of course. Everyone loved the Beatles. Mm. And, you know, I remember when I was old enough to be able to work the radiogram myself. And that is, that's like a ritual in itself. Mm. You know, putting a rec- taking the record out of the sleeve carefully, holding it with the edges so that you didn't get any, um, anything from from your fingers to dirty the record, placing it on the, on the machine, going through the process of turning the thing on, putting the tone arm down carefully so you didn't scratch it. And then if, because you're in the lounge room in, in a small house, the headphones were the, were the greatest invention. Uh, you'd listen in the headphones while mum and dad watched the Sullivans. You'd be listening to the Beatles with the headphones or whatever. I'd be going through my brother's sister's collections, testing stuff and listening to stuff. Um, and th- that has carried through. I was, I was an avid Double J listener as, as, a, as, a, um, as a teenager. And, um, of course, like everyone else, I discarded my vinyl when CDs came in. But when 15 years ago, no, 16 years ago now when I got married, I met Stella, my wife, through, through Simon Smith, um, she was a friend of his wife. Um, when we set up house, I thought, and our first Christmas came, I thought, I want some of that old Christmas spirit that I used to have when I was a kid. So, see, my father was a self-taught mechanic and he ran, a, um, he ran the uh, Shell service station at Belmore. And the Goodyear Tire Company used to put out the Great Songs of Christmas record every year from 1963 till about 1970. And we played those things to death. So when I wanted this Christmas spirit back, I thought, ah, the op shops. I'll go there and get those great songs of Christmas. So while I'm looking for these things, I notice, oh, gee, there's some Ian Jury. Oh, there's some Elvis Costello. Oh, wow. You know, because I wasn't a great CD collector either because uh, I always listened to the radio to find out what was the next big thing. But by then, Triple J had sort of become a little generic um, and I didn't have much of a CD collection. I thought, well, I've got to buy a vinyl player to to play these things on, so I did. And one crate of records 16 years ago turned into about 4,000 LPs and about 8,000 singles later. Wow. Uh, And... Like you were saying before, did it creep up on you? Yes, it crept up on me. <laughs> but um, uh, can you remember the the, uh, the first album you ever bought? The first album I ever bought, um, 1979, my brother came back. I was 15, my eldest brother was 25. He came back from his big trip over to Europe 
and he literally stepped off the plane with the madness one step beyond EP under his arms because he didn't want it in his bag to get wrecked. He had it with his hand luggage and he just handed it to me at the airport. He says, you've got to listen to this. And it was the madness one step beyond EP and he also had the single of the Eaton Rifles by The Jam. Wow. And I tell you what, at that age, at that time, because everything on the radio, commercial radio up until then was Kiss and Disco Hmm. and... The new wave was like a revelation to me and I, I just, I lapped it up, I ate it up and, and it was just at that time too when a friend of mine from school was, I'd go to his house at Marrickville after school and we'd listen to his elder brother's XTC, Iggy Pop, um, early Joe Jackson when he was edgy and sort of punkish. Uh, we were listening to that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, and Radio Birdman as well. We were listening to that and I was, I was hooked on that as well. So One Step Beyond EP played that to death loud. We had to, haunted the, rec, the uh, import shop at Town Hall Station there. Mm. Yeah. There was an import shop booth yeah. waiting for the Madness one to come out. But I was able to buy the Jam Sound Effects album um, from uh, Marrickville, the Elwyn record shop in Marrickville. And that was uh, like a lot of record shops in suburbia. They were half gift shop, half record bar. So the Jam's Sound Effects was the first album I bought. So you have 4,000 LPs. Uh, It fluctuates now, actually. But you sell sell them as well. I I sell them, uh, but I I see there are are dealers and there there are... Collectors. I'm a collector who sells the overflow of his collection because my wife said to me, and rightly so, Peter, you've got too many records. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's no room in the house. We've but got visitors so coming. Well, um, they're so thin. You know, yeah, they're well, like, yeah, well, an iPhone with Spotify is even thinner. Yes, of course, but it, it fits in your pocket and you forget about it. That's it true, you can't forget. It doesn't forget. have the artwork on the sleeve, it doesn't have the liner notes that tell you the story or talk up a shitty record but still entertain you with their words. Um, it, it doesn't have that process that I mentioned before of putting the record on, taking, it, taking care of it, taking it out of its sleeve and, 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 and for want of a better word, husbanding what you have. So it really lights you up. Is it something that um, you you can see uh, doing for the rest of your life, or um, I mean, how how easy is it for you to find records these days? It's it's still easy to find them. It's just not that easy to pay for them these days. Right. Uh, the 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 vinyl re revolution, or whatever you want to call it, has got everybody. You've got uh, companies. Um, Pressing records again. You've got JB Hi-Fi. Do you think that will last? Records. Um, I don't know and I don't care because I've got my collection. Um, and if, if it lasts, good. If it doesn't, it'll go underground again like it, like it did for decades before they came back. Uh, but I will still enjoy them. Yeah. And, and your stereo systems are obviously hark uh, uh, back to an earlier earlier era or they're, they're modern? Most definitely. Well, it depends on the record because um, I've, I've, I've gotten a thing for 78s lately, the old 78, 78. speed records. Mm, wow. 
the, the Bakelite. Yeah. Uh, no, shellac. Shellac. It's right. going back even like dark ages. What, yes. What's that all about? Well, um, it's about uh, it's about taking the obsession that little further or you could call it it's about seeing what happened with music earlier on. Um, there are things that you can hear on 78 that you will never hear on CD or LP. Cause you, cause, because the recording process was totally different. Yes. So they couldn't cut out a lot of the, the stuff that was happening on the record, right? No, it was acoustic recording. Mm. They'd, they'd record into a horn mm. and the whole band would be playing at into the same time. Into a horn. Time. Yeah. Mm. That's the early stuff acoustically recorded uh, when the, all the machines were wound the gramophones. up. Gramophones, yeah. <laughs> uh, then in the 30s when the electrical gramophones came in, Things were electrically recorded and they were able to make inroads into the recording uh, process, yet those things were so well built, people kept their wind-ups and wouldn't... They were so well built and expensive. Like a gramophone, the cost of a a good gramophone, a a floor model from back in the day, was something like uh, $6,000 in today's money, the equivalent. So you collect those as well? I've, I've tried to limit myself to one per decade. <laughs> so I've got a Bakelite tabletop model that plays um, 78s only with a radio in it that Chrysler made. I've got a 50s one with a, that Eames-looking yeah, model right. with displayed legs. Mm. Uh, and my 60s one is my pride and joy, which is in my listening room. It's, it's your old formal lounge room. Um, it... There's no television in it. There's just the radiogram, which the lid lifts up and you can play uh, 78s as well as 33s and 45s on there. And it's valve-driven, so you get that old warm sound. Mm. So I believe you play the records that were engineered to those. So all my mono Elvis, all my mono uh, Beatles and mono Stones... Uh, and all my mono calypso and scar are played on the radiogram because that's what those records are engineered for. But when it comes to 70s and 80s stuff, I've got the Marantz turntable with the Yamaha uh, amp and the Bose speakers. The Bose speakers were given to me. The Yamaha cost me 25 bucks. I mean, I've got got champagne tastes on a beer budget, which is great, Mm. you know, and you 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 can still find this stuff quite cheap. So what would be your most valuable record for you and dollar-wise, I guess? The most valuable record I own in terms of price is probably uh, a 78. It's uh, our Don Bradman. Right. Sung by a gentleman called Art Leonard. You'd call it a very early novelty record. It's a song about Don, they wrote about Don Bradman and it became a hit in, in a, the early 30s. In the 30s. And it became a hit here and in England. So when, if one goes up on eBay, it goes for about 300 bucks, 300 to $400, depending on condition. And what's your most valuable record um, emotionally? Emotionally, my most valuable record is Abbey Road by The Beatles. Right. Yeah, that was one it's of the one ones I that play I play often. It's one of the ones that I used to sneak into my brother's room and play when he was out, and he'd come back and pound me yeah. for hours. 
<laughs> for playing because he just knew that I'd been in his room. Yeah, I, uh, and yeah. touched his stuff. stuff yeah, touched yes. his stuff. I got a pounding once for um, borrowing my brother's mono cassette player. Remember the mm. one-speaker cassette players? Mm. And while he was out and um, holding it near the radio while Casey Kasem had the top 20 going. On and, a Sunday, and, Sunday yeah, evening, yeah. And, and pressing record in between the ads and trying to judge it <laughs> and trying not to cough. <laughs> Because you'd record any sound. Someone had burst in the room and you'd have to rewind. So, Pete, what's next in your, in your obsession, collections, etc.? cetera? I, I really don't know. I'm going to try and resist wax um, recordings. <laughs> right. Those Edison um, yeah. wax. Those tubes. Those surely tubes, yeah. those surely there's tubes. none of them left. I mean, there's, they, there's they a, melt in the sun, don't there's they? There's a lot of them left. Really? I actually have some wax tubes in their original packet as, as ephemera right. and I hope they will stay ephemera because one of those Edison machines worth over a 1000 bucks. Right. And I, I simply refuse to pay that. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, with the mortgage and all, and being a working class man. So Pete, th- thanks for coming in today. I, I, we always finish with a song, and since mm-hmm. you're a song man, well, he's I got four thousand albums to choose from. It's going to be pretty. It's going to be interesting. Really appreciate you coming in, Pete. It's been Thank great. you very much, George and Brett. So, um, what's the song, Pete? Have you been thinking about this? I haven't been thinking about it at all <laughs> because I must have missed it on the memo. Yeah. Well, well, obviously, it's off the Abbey Road album, I, I imagine, wouldn't it? What's your well, actually, we'll, we'll take it off the Abbey Road album, most okay. definitely, and um, it's a Paul McCartney sung tune. Mm-hmm. Oh, darling, Pete Wilson. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Thanks Pete. Boys.